0: This interview was recorded on July 14th, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Joel Gruse. Based in Seattle, Joel is a technical leader and software engineer, as well as the author of the popular O'Reilly book, Data Science from Scratch, First Principles with Python. You can follow him on Twitter at Joel Groos and check out his website at joelgruse.com. Joel also co-hosts the Adversarial Learning podcast, which you can find at adversarialearning.com, and on Twitter at adversarial underscore L. Joel is the author of the Lean Pub book, 10 Essays on FizzBuzz: Meditations on Python, Mathematics, Science, Engineering, and Design. In the book, Joel explores different approaches to solving the FizzBuzz problem that is well known in the realm of computer science education and in software engineering interviews. The book is also a great resource for anyone who's interested in getting into programming for the first time, full of practical examples of how programmers think and uh, many different categories of solution to the same problem. And it's a really fun and practical way of explaining a lot of uh, concepts from math as well. In this interview, we're going to talk about Joel's background and career, professional interests, what the FSBA's problem is, and some of the approaches set out in his book. And at the end, we'll talk about his experience as both a conventionally published and as a self-published author. So thank you, Joel, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. I
0: always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in tech and programming.
1: Oh, yeah. So I grew up in Atlanta, actually. Um, I went to college in Texas and studied math, and then I moved to Seattle after college for math grad school. Um, I dropped out of math grad school after a couple of years, and this was way before data science and things like that. And so the career path for math grad school dropouts was quantitative finance. Um, And and so so I spent some time working in quantitative finance. Um, I worked at a hedge fund doing foreign exchange analysis, Um, and the hedge fund went out of business. Um, and it just so happened that I knew someone who was hiring at a startup called Faircast, which was, this was like 2006. So Faircast was an online travel site that did price predictions on airfare. So you tell it, I want to fly from Seattle to Los Angeles on these dates, and it would say the lowest price is $300, and we think it's going down, so you should wait, or we think it's going up, so you should buy you know, immediately. Um, and so there I was in Let's call it a business intelligence role, where I built spreadsheets and I wrote SQL queries, and that was the bulk of my job. Um, and, and so I sort of muddled along doing those kinds of things for for quite a while. Um, and then data science started to become a thing, and I thought I would like to get into data science. Um, and so I kind of BS my way through an interview and convinced the CEO of a tiny startup that uh, I was qualified to be his data scientist. And um, lo and behold, I became his data scientist. I, I I taught myself a lot of data science and a lot of coding like really quickly. Um, So I ended up writing a book on data science. Um, And then I found that, you know, I liked the data science but I also liked the writing code and and the programming part. So I kind of pushed my career in that direction a little bit, ended up going to Google in Seattle uh, where I was a software engineer for a couple of years, um, working on pretty boring things actually. Um, But then I found that I sort of missed the data aspect and I left Google and joined the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which is an AI research nonprofit. And there my, inter- or my role was kind of, you know, half engineering, half data and machine learning. And uh, I, I've sort of found a nice niche for myself, uh, kind of playing a little bit in each space. And I was at AI2 for about three and a half years. And then I left last fall to join Capital Group, which is a large investment firm. Um, and there I lead a small team that's focused on building machine learning and data solutions.
0: Do you remember what your first computer was
1: my first computer so when i was a kid um my dad had like one of these radio shack color computers and so that was the that was the first computer
0: okay and did you did you sort of start coding on your own organically or
1: i did when when i was a real little kid i was really interested in the computer and i'd write these terrible basic programs and i think that computer had probably like 4k of ram so Uh, You know, I would write like a little text adventure game and eventually the computer would run out of memory just because the program got too big. Um, So I always enjoyed coding Um, in high school. I took the computer science class and, you know, I, I did well in it and I think I liked it. And then for some reason I went to college and. Uh, it fell off my radar and I just ended up doing math instead and and was much more into science than computers. Um, And then, you know, after college, after grad school, after working like years later, I I sort of, I don't want to say I remembered, but I somehow fell back into it. Um, And, you know, I I had never learned computer science the way that you would learn it if you had a degree in it, but um, I sort of kind of picked that up as I went along.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned that my next question was going to be a, a variant of a question that comes up often on this podcast, depending on a person's path throughout their career. But um, given where you ended up, do you wish you had taken computer science in university?
1: I, I mean, there are many things where you can look back in life and think, "I, what if I had chosen differently?" Um, and that's certainly one of them. I, I mean, yes, if I had if I had studied computer science. As an undergraduate and gone into that industry, um, you know, immediately after college, I would probably be, you know, further ahead in my career than I am now. At the same time, you know, I, I'm doing pretty well for myself, so I, I shouldn't complain about it too bad. And you know, studying math is its is its own reward, so can't complain about that too much either.
0: So you mentioned that you worked for the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and that just sounds like a really fascinating place to work. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of work that you did there.
1: Yeah, so AI2 is a really neat organization. And in many ways, it's a little bit like an academic computer science department, but without teaching in classes. So just purely focused on research. I was on a team called Allen NLP uh, that was focused on, Two things. One was kind of fundamental research in natural language processing and natural language understanding. Um, And the second is that we built a library called Allen NLP as well, which was a deep learning library for NLP researchers uh, built on top of PyTorch. And so my job was to be an engineer on that library, but also to kind of be an engineer who spoke the language of research so that I could talk with researchers about what they were trying to do and help them figure out how to get it done in this library and, you know, sometimes I would even end up like suggesting ways they should structure their experiments, which is a little bit weird because I'm not, you know, I'm not an NLP authority the way that they are, but um, but yeah. So I I worked on that, I added features, I fixed bugs, I supported users, I partnered with researchers to get their experiments written, I sort of badgered them to use best practices, a little bit of everything.
0: Just taking the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about artificial intelligence. Um, most of the time when people sort of sort of um, hear about it, they hear about, you know, uh, big prominent people are really afraid about how it's going to, you know, take over the world and you're going to lose your job and, and we've got to be really careful in how we manage it. And then you hear other people say, oh, people will just find other things to do. And or it's, you know, really far out from actually having the kind of scary impact that people are thinking. Just in general, what are, what are your thoughts about the current state of affairs or
1: or where things are going? Um, I'm not super worried about any kind of AI apocalypse anytime soon. Um, it's, it's interesting actually the, so OpenAI has been releasing these, uh, language models, GPT, GPT-2, and they just have this one called GPT-3, which is, you know, bigger and better. And someone, I just saw a tweet right before I hopped in this podcast where someone like put something in it and they're like, wow, this thing captured my thoughts perfectly. And the text it generated is astounding. And I read it and the the text it generated seemed kind of like nonsensical and repetitive to me. So like a a lot of what we see in these things is maybe a little bit of like us projecting what we want to see. I think that certainly, you know, there are some kinds of, you know, basic repetitive jobs that will decide that computers are probably better at doing. Um, I think that in most of those cases, uh, I don't want to say anyone's going to be better off for losing their job because they're not going to be, but, but, but I think there are probably more high value things that most of those people can be working on um and and so i i think that's mostly what you'll see it's hard for me to imagine um in the near term any kind of industries where ai is going to you know eliminate human contributions to this or to that
0: you mentioned you started out your professional career as a quant um just for just for those who might not know um in finance often people who are um very well educated in areas like math and things like that, get these jobs where they do, they set up very complicated algorithms and things like that. I have a, a friend who um, his his doctoral research was on getting satellites to look through clouds better. So he did atmospheric physics and moved right into hedge funds and, and quant work afterwards. Um, is that the kind of work that you're doing now as well?
1: No, so the kind of work that I'm doing now is more, it's a little bit more focused around nlp and extracting insights from unstructured data um and and so less like looking at time series of prices and trying to find patterns and more um capital group uh the has a thesis around sort of long-term fundamental investing so you know Really studying companies and getting to understand them, um, and trying to decide which companies do we think are going to do well as companies. Um, and, and so, because of that, it's a very like research-driven investment process. Um, and, and so, what I focus on is mostly like building tools to help, you know, people make sense of all this research and, you know, produce it more efficiently and and consume it more efficiently and find what they need and things like that.
0: That's really fascinating. So it's kind of data science on reports, like written reports
1: um i would say well i mean written reports or news articles or you know anything like that but but basically making sense of kind of unstructured textual data
0: Oh, that's really that's really fascinating one thing uh that is uh, one of the pleasures of this podcast is i get to interview people from all around the world and uh, maybe uh, talk to them a little bit about what people might have seen in the headlines where they're from, uh, and um, we, we sort of still do that a little bit, but but uh, in every episode, when, what we've done is taken the opportunity for the last couple of months is to ask people a little bit about how the pandemic uh, has affected them in the place in their career and in the place where they live, and you know maybe personally as well if they're willing to talk about that and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what
1: your experience has been like in Seattle with with the pandemic I know it's yeah about- so we live pretty far out in the suburbs, probably about twenty miles outside of Seattle. Um, and so because of that, uh, I had a pretty terrible commute and my wife had a pretty terrible commute. Um, and and so, and on top of that, we're both kind of homebodies. So I would say like, if there are two people who are like well-suited to be stuck at home and working from home and not having to drive into the office, like we're them. Um, that said, we also have a nine-year-old daughter and she like she's not enjoying not getting to see her friends. Um, so it, it's, it's really tough on her. Uh, so it kind of, at a household level, it sort of balances out, although it's probably much worse than, you know, on a kid. So I guess it doesn't balance out. It's bad on net.
0: And around when did, did you start getting the sense that something was going on that you would have to adapt your life to?
1: well so you know i follow all the weirdos on twitter so i heard them talking about it back in january and probably my first tweet referencing it is in january um i had a business trip my my company is based in los angeles and so i usually fly down there about once a month Um, and i had a business trip down there basically the first couple days of march Um, and in let's say in late february I made like two Costco runs and stocked up on like a bunch of supplies and toilet paper and things like that. So that was, uh, I would say, a little bit ahead of the curve. And then when I went down to Los Angeles in um, early March, you know, I took with me some masks. I took with me uh, some some of those kind of supplies. So it was on my radar. And then I was actually supposed to go back down for another trip the next week. And I said, you know what, with this coronavirus, I'm not coming down. For this next trip, and they made fun of me, but then, but then the meeting got canceled because of coronavirus. So,
0: yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that. Um, uh, I probably we maybe follow some of the same people, or at least the same kind of you know, uh, bubbles of people, um, online. And yeah, I I started becoming aware of things a bit in late June or in late in late January myself. And I remember my first reaction was to uh, start stocking up on booze uh, because <laughs> I really didn't want to run out of that. Uh, being being single, my responsibilities are not the same as yours. But it was an interesting experience, and in just like kind of realizing that a household, even if it's just one person, not to have a well-stocked larder, and you know how exposed how exposed you are if to disruptions in supply chains or really anything going on if you don't if you aren't well stocked up and it's not i think a lot of people had to do a little bit of psychological dancing around am i becoming a hoarder or something like that and it's like what i realized is i'm just living now like my parents did when they were on the farm you know like you have a well-stocked larder so you can go there instead of to the store to get stuff to make your dinner
1: there was a period of time in, and i would say april and maybe may where if there was room in the fridge i felt like i should buy something to take it up I, i think we've we've gotten a little bit past that now but
0: yeah, no, that's actually it's funny. That's exactly how I started looking at my empty cupboards. Was like they're 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 empty. <laughs> Fill them, um, uh, and I never really quite got there because I don't need to. Because it turns out, you know, you actually don't need all that much space to store to store food. Um, uh, which was a good a good lesson to learn. I should mention to everyone listening that if you want to hear uh, Joel talk about this a little bit more, the last three episodes of their podcast have been re- rechristened uh, adversarial distancing rather than adversarial learning, and they talk quite a bit in depth about about this kind of this kind of thing and it, I I enjoyed listening to them preparing for these this interview they were really good discussions so moving on to the subject of your book uh, fizzbuzz so before we ask about the origins of the book and everything like that uh, can you talk a little bit, bit about what fizzbuzz is and where
1: people encounter it yeah so fizzbuzz um is the following problem and it supposedly originated as a as a children's game but anyway the, the The problem is to say or print if you're using a computer, so we'll say print the numbers one to 100, except if the number is divisible by three, instead of printing the number, you print fizz. If the number is divisible by five, instead of printing the number, you print buzz. And if the number is divisible by 15, instead of printing the number, you print fizz buzz. So you can imagine a game where children are sitting in a circle going around saying the numbers in order and then having to substitute you know, fizz or buzz or fizz buzz. Um, but it, it's sort of a, a somewhat elementary, you know, computer programming exercise. And because it's elementary, sometimes it gets used as kind of a, a lowest common denominator weed out programmer interview question. Um, and, and so sometimes people will ask that to make sure that you can, uh, you know, if you're an experienced programmer, it's a very easy problem to solve. So sometimes they'll ask that to, to make sure that you can quote unquote, you know, code your way out of a paper bag, let's say. Um, and so now everyone knows it gets used for that. So it's in people's minds as the canonical bad interview question that people get asked. Um, and so that's FizzBuzz. That's why most programmers are familiar with it.
0: It's, uh, I just have to share a little anecdote. So my background was, I did, my education was in um, uh, English literature, and then I went into investment banking for a few years. Um, And uh, I did a fair amount of pretty sophisticated finance, like, I mean, from my perspective, financial modeling and Excel. And the whole time, I didn't know that I was programming. And I, you know, and um, uh, when I started working for LeanPub with my old friend from high school, Peter Armstrong, uh, I was the resident non-programmer. And I remember one time, we were on a car trip to a business meeting or something like that. And he said well you know len like you, these guys all think of you as like an english major or whatever but like i know that you can do some other things too so i'm going to ask you this this question that we always get asked in programming interviews which is fizzbuzz and it was there was a bit of pressure <laughs> uh, and uh, and but you know within a few seconds i was just like well let me just think it through what would i do if i had to do this in excel and i was like oh i'd use the mod function and i'd go if mod 15 or if mod 5 or if mod 3 uh, and it wasn't until, like, so I was happy with the result, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't until years later that I actually learned that mod isn't, isn't just like a feature built into Excel to do certain things and make it easy. That <laughs> It's actually a concept for math. Uh, and so it was anyways, just this interesting experience where like given the tools and sort of solutions that you, that you can use, you can actually find your way uh, to answering problems in different ways and not even really know what you're doing. Uh, but what your book really does, does really well is it, it sets out, Ten different approaches, although there's multiple dimensions to the approaches, and helps you learn a lot of these concepts, a lot of mathematical concepts along the way. Um, I should mention that uh, Joel is also doing a really funny video series called Ten Videos on FizzBuzz, Um, and for any programmer watching, I really recommend watching the first one where Joel is doing a mock interview with someone who asks him to do this, and the the sort of like naive programmer that he uh, that he's playing actually writes print like 100 times on 100 different lines and it's really funny to actually like when you realize that you're really gonna do it um, <laughs> That's when it becomes really funny, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, What's wrong with the 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 approach of just typing out, you know print null or print fizz or print buzz for each of the hundred numbers?
1: so uh, First let's talk about what's right with it um, It solves the problem uh, like if someone says to you, I would need you to print the numbers one to a hundred, except you know in these circumstances print these other things, and if you write out a hundred print statements, um, that solves the problem. So that's what's right about it. And you know, I I can imagine as an interviewer myself being like grudgingly impressed by someone who who kind of goes to all that trouble and does it. it, it it's it, there's something you know funny about it. Um, as to what's wrong with it, there. There are a few things from a from an efficiency point of view. You know part of the reason why we use computers to solve problems is that computers are good at doing certain things Um, and and so when we use computers to solve problems, we'd like to let the computers do the part of the problem that they're especially good at Um, and, you know, using that, you know, Printing is not something they're particularly good at, they're okay at it, but having the human figure out what the right output is, is definitely not the right um, division of labor. So that's, you know, that's one problem. Uh, In an interview setting, um, another problem is that usually when they ask you a question like this, they're, they're trying to understand, you know, can you think about this algorithmically? Can you come up with an algorithm for solving this problem? And using 100 print statements is not really coming up with an algorithm for solving the problem. It's really solving the problem on paper and then just printing it out. Um, and then the third reason from kind of a more like software engineering point of view, is that a solution with 100 print statements is actually really hard to test. And you know, usually when we write code, we like to be able to test it and make sure that uh, it's doing what we think it's doing. But the the only way to test the 100 print statements version is to kind of print them out and check them one by one. So it's really not ideal from that point of view either
0: you also write about extensibility um,
1: yeah so that one that one's a little bit more um so that's true like um if you have a function that computes fizzbuzz um and you loop over numbers and print out the result of that function then it's easy to make certain kinds of changes like you know i'd rather have the words be lowercase or i want to have the outputs be in spanish Um, and then those kinds of changes are easy to make when you know you just have to apply it in one place to the to the function call versus having to make those changes in 100 places Um, that said there are other solutions in the book that are not particularly extensible for one reason or another but are kind of interesting for other reasons
0: uh the second solution that you talk about is the if lf lf else response which is basically the one as i understand it is pretty much the one i kind of gave when i was was challenged with this and is that is that the most popular response you think Uh,
1: yeah i I would go even beyond that and say if someone is asking you to solve fizzbuzz that's probably what they're expecting to see is that or some minor variation on that
0: And can you talk a little bit about what the modulus is for those who might not be so mathematically literate?
1: Sure. So um, think about when you do long division um, and you don't want to end up with like a fraction. So I want to say, you know, like 45 divided by seven. Well, seven doesn't go evenly into 45. So there's going to be a remainder left over. So when I divide 45 by seven, I say seven times six is 42. And there's a remainder of three. And so the simplest way to think about the modulus is just, if I wanna say what is 45 mod seven, I'm just saying what is the remainder when I divide 45 by seven. And so if you take a number that like 42, which is divisible by seven, then the remainder is zero. Um, And so checking that the modulus of, you know, a number is zero is is an easy way of checking whether one number is divisible. Well, I don't say an easy way, but computers usually have modulus built in as an operator. So if you're programming, it's an easy way to check that whether one number is divisible by another.
0: Yeah it's funny my my way into learning the 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 excel feature of mod was i was working on a um uh a model for a giant french infrastructure company um and uh one thing they had to deal with a lot was local mayors and so you had to build a period into your assumptions where like every 4 years the anyone who's vying to be elected mayor of a town would want to negotiate with this company to lower the fees that they charged and so we had to build it's like well then go go find a way to make something change every four years but you want to be able to type yep. in that number in case you change it to five or you want to change it to three or something else um yep. and so yeah so it's, it's interesting the applicability of these things that might seem might seem kind of um a little bit arcane uh, but it, they exist for very real reasons um one of my favorite uh solutions that you offer in the book is euclid solution uh yeah know if you if you if you Want to talk about that for a couple of minutes because it's just a fascinating example of like the diversity of approaches and the complexity of the solutions that you can find in the book, all explained very clearly, by the way.
1: Yeah, so um, Euclid's solution is interesting because it's based on a couple steps. So, one step is this notion of having the greatest common denominator of two numbers. So, the greatest common denominator of two numbers is just what is the largest number that divides them both. So you know, the largest number that divides 10 and five is five, so that's the greatest common denominator. Largest number that divides four and six is two, so that's the greatest common denominator. And it turns out that there's a solution of FISBAs that involves greatest common denominators. And what is this? Well, if you take the greatest common denominator of any number and 15, um, if that number is divisible by three but not by five, that greatest common denominator is gonna be three. If the greatest common if the number is divisible by five, but not by three, the greatest common denominator will be five. If the number is divisible by 15, the greatest common denominator will be 15. And if the number is not divisible by three or five, the greatest common denominator will be one. And so if you compute the greatest common denominator, then it's going to be either 1, 3, 5, or 15. And based on that, you can choose which is the correct output for FISBAs. But then, um, so Python, which most of the, you know, all the solutions in the book are in, um, has, a, has a greatest common denominator function. But how does it work? Well, it works according to uh, what's called Euclid's algorithm. So Euclid was a, you know, a, a Greek mathematician, and he has an algorithm for computing the greatest common denominator of two numbers. Um, and so Euclid's solution basically uses Euclid's algorithm to compute the greatest common denominator of your input and in 15, and then uses that to choose the correct output. Now most people uh, don't know, or at least don't recognize Euclid's algorithm. So when you read the solution, uh, it's very, it, it's it looks elegant and it's short, and it's very not obvious at all what it's doing. Thanks but but, but it's a it's a it's a beautiful solution. I, I, that's also one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, definitely. No, definitely. It's beautiful. Um, uh, I should also mention, by the way, in all these sort of serious discussions, it's a very funny book as well uh, with a re- really great sense of humor. So um, you'll enjoy it. You'll definitely enjoy reading it. Um, yeah, there's there's other approaches. Uh, there's uh, the fifth approach is trig- using trigonometry. Uh, the eighth one uses random guessing. Um, the ninth one uses matrix multiplication. Uh, but I think the 10th one, the last one, BizBuzz and TensorFlow was actually the kind of, I guess, the 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 source of, where all the other essays came from, because you wrote this post about how to solve fizzbuzz using machine learning um, that got a lot of attention. And it's funny, because the way the post is framed, it's that there's someone up for an interview, and then they get asked the fizzbuzz question, and they get they take insult at it, and so then they take the opportunity to just show what a brilliant person they are to the uh, interviewer who is all of a sudden demonstrably out of their depth. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, a machine learning approach to solving fizzbuzz.
1: Yeah, so um you know th- that was a blog post that I wrote in 2016 um and I feel like I saw a discussion online about like stupid ways to solve FISBAs and I thought um I bet I can come up with a stupider one so I I went off and and thought about it and 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 wrote that post. Um, But FizzBuzz as a machine learning problem. It actually turns out to be pretty interesting. So what what do we mean by machine learning? Well, if you think about how we typically program a computer to do things, um, you know, most frequently you you give it instructions to follow and you say, take a number. If the number is divisible by five, then print buzz. If the number, and and so that's your traditional programming way of solving a problem. Uh, With machine learning, uh, you do something different. And that's that you, well, in one paradigm, and in particular in, in the one that, that I use in the book, you give the computer a bunch of examples that are correct, and you ask it to learn a model to make the correct prediction. So, so you know, the, the, the simplest, example not the simplest, but a simple example is, imagine wanting to train a computer to or get a computer to be able to uh, tell you whether a picture is a picture of a dog or a picture of a cat. Now, you know, a picture is in a a bigger array of numbers. And if you sat down and said, I want to write a rule for when an array of numbers represents a dog and when it represents a cat, you're gonna have a really hard time with that. And you know, there are things you can do, but it's gonna be pretty tricky. Uh, But the thing about machine learning is if you specify, you know, here is a model that has some weights and it's going to, you know, apply those weights in a certain way to the input and make a judgment. And then I can show it a lot of pictures, it can learn, what weights to apply that actually get the right answer most of the time. And so that's kind of the machine learning solution. So the way to approach FizzBuzz as a machine learning problem is to say, well, there's probably a lot of ways to approach it, but the way that I approach it is to say, for any number, um, there are four potential outputs, meaning FizzBuzz, FizzBuzz, or Print the number as is. Um, And so it's what you would call a a four class classification problem. So similarly, if you had, you know, this is either a picture of a dog or a cat or a turtle or a horse and tell me which one it is, except that the classes are something different. And so we want to take the numbers um, and, you know, use a bunch of labeled examples. So here, I took the correct fizzbuzz outputs for 101 up to, say, 1,000, and used those to train a model, um, and then try to apply a model to get the right answers for 1 to 100, which is what we're supposed to do. Um, and, you know, in the chapter, I explore a couple of different ways of, of thinking about that, a couple of different models, a couple of different ways to represent, you know, a number as a set of features for machine learning, um, and it mostly works. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot for sharing that. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, just again, to repeat the title of the book, because we're partly here to get people to buy it, uh, but 10 essays on FizzBuzz is, uh, is the title of the book. Or, and um, yeah, and also check out 10 videos on FizzBuzz, which I think is an ongoing series. Um, and you can also actually follow, follow Joel or subscribe to Joel's channel on YouTube as well. Um, so just moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your experience as an author. So I believe your first experience as a book author was with, with O'Reilly, uh, your Data Science
1: from Scratch book. I actually um bef- well before that quite a long time ago I wrote and self-published with very little success uh, a book on spreadsheets.
0: Oh, okay. Oh, um, I didn't
1: know that. Yeah, no, no one does. <laughs>
0: um and so when when you uh, it's it's really interesting to learn a lot of people who aspire to be published by by something like uh, publishers like O'Reilly and things like that. Um how did that come about? Did they approach you? Did you approach them and pitch them an idea?
1: Um so they're here, here's how it happened. Um, a different publishing company, who, whom I won't name, um, but reached out to me out of the blue um, and asked me if I wanted to write a book on analytics and Python. And so I thought about it and I talked with them and they sent me a sample contract and it had a lot of terms in it that I considered really unacceptable. And so I, I told them, no thanks. Um, but that put the idea in my head of writing a book. And I thought, what is the book I would like to write? And analytics and Python was not really the kind of book that I wanted to write anyway. Um, And then the the, the second thing is is that, uh, well, two two more things. Um, One, as I said, my background is is in math. And in math, there's this sense of you're not allowed to use results unless you've already proved them. Um, And and so to give like an almost comical example of this. Um when I was in grad school I took a math class that was, you know, several quarters long and the third quarter had a different professor from the first two quarters. And he came in on the first day and he said, I'm so delighted that last quarter you proved this certain theorem because I'm going to need to use that this quarter. And like in his mind, if we hadn't proved it in the previous quarter, we weren't allowed to use it in that third quarter. So that that's kind of the sensibility that I come from that like we should, you know, we we should do the foundations before we do anything else. Um, and then the second thing is that, um, you know, one of the first MOOCs, the online courses, was Andrew Ng's ML class, which is a machine learning class, and there again he kind of went through machine learning uh, again by implementing these models in Octave and using kind of gradient descent as this almost organizing principle for the class. And so, And so both of these two things really influenced the way that I thought about um, how to teach and how to explain. Um, And and so I thought, what if I could, you know, approach data science from this perspective? And so I wrote up a proposal and I emailed it to O'Reilly. Why did I choose them? Because they had a, you know, they were prominent in technical publishing. That was the first name I thought of when I thought of technical publishers. And Um, it was actually a much more ambitious proposal than what the book ended up being. Um, And they wrote back to me pretty quickly and they said, this sounds interesting, but you know, this is like two books worth of material and we don't give two book contracts to unknown authors. So um, what can you do about that? And so I said, you know what, like the first half where we derive everything from scratch is the interesting part to me. The second half, um, which was basically, okay, now that you've done it from scratch here, so you would actually do things using libraries, um, and just to take a step back, the conceit of the book is that we're going to learn data science and the models that use in data science, regression, decision trees, neural networks, but we're gonna do that by implementing them all in like bare Python so that we really understand how they work, um, and so the second half of that book, which was the, now let's go learn the libraries, um, I said, you can give that to someone else, Um, I don't know if this is exactly what happened, but Jake Vanderplast wrote a book called the Python Data Science Handbook, which is basically what my second half would have been. So that's good because it meant that I didn't have to write it. Um, And and so, you know, even after I pared this proposal down, they were pretty skeptical. So I wrote a sample chapter and I sent it to them. And then they're like, "Eh, I don't know. So I wrote another sample chapter. and I sent it to them and and this happened several times. Then eventually um, Mike Lukades, who, I don't remember title anymore. He said VP of content strategy or something. He said, look, if I keep saying, I don't know, are you eventually going to send me the entire book, like one chapter at a time? And I said, yeah, probably. And he said, okay, fine, we'll publish it. So um, that's that's how it happened.
0: Thanks for sharing that really great story. There are a couple of things for any, you know, aspiring authors or struggling authors out there to think about right now. The first is read the terms um, uh, of any contract that you're presented with. You can say no and succeed elsewhere if you don't like the terms that you're being offered. Um, and also persistence. <laughs> persistence is, I mean, is just a necessary condition of completing a good book. Uh, e- even if on the other end, you've just got people going, give me more, give me more, give me more. Um, either way, it's going to be up to you to, you know, sort of sit at your desk or wherever you sit when you write and crank things out and make them good. Um, and so uh, for this latest book, you decided to self-publish it, I guess, like your, like your very first one from years ago. Uh, why did you decide to self-publish this book?
1: so a couple of reasons um one one let's call it laziness um it's it's a lot easier to um it's a lot less work to to the publishing part at least is a lot less work than having to you know interact with editors and and copywriters and and so on and back and forth and contract so like i this was sort of like a, a very hobby project for me, and so the amount of energy that I wanted to put into it was 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 correspondingly hobby-like. So, that, so that's one. The the second reason is that it's a very strange book, and and what do I mean by that? I mean that most technical books are about specific topics. So here's a book you would read to learn data science. Here's a book you would read to learn Java. Here's a book you would read to learn about databases well no no one's going to say you know what I need to read a book to learn about fizzbuzz because no one really needs to learn about fizzbuzz um, and the second thing is that uh, other than fizzbuzz as a unifying theme the book's not really about anything in particular so you know I, I said in the introduction you know I, I I hope that you'll learn a lot by reading the book and I think anyone would learn a lot by reading the book but it's not a book that you would read to learn anything in particular and so because of that it makes it a little bit unusual and so when I think about it as like um you know a book on the shelf at Barnes and Noble um that like I don't know how it fits and when I think about it as you know like an O'Reilly book or a Manning book or something like that it doesn't feel like one of their books to me so that that was also part of my consideration is just that I imagined, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I I imagined that it didn't kind of fit in um, with, you know, their catalogs or with anyone's catalog. I I couldn't, I couldn't think of a publisher where where I thought this book feels like it belongs with this publisher. So that's the second reason. And the third reason was a little bit as a challenge to myself. Like I said, I self-published this Excel book that, you know, was not successful at all. And, um, Eventually, I just put it online for free, and people, some people really like it and they email me, but for the most part, it, nothing came of it. Um, but I, I saw this as kind of a challenge for myself. You know, when I self published the Excel book, nobody knew who I was. Um, you know, Twitter was around, but I, I didn't have any followers. Um, I was not prominent in. Data science or any other field. So, like, there were a lot of things working against me. And, you know, part of me wants to find out, you know, now that I understand a lot more about how to sell things and how to market things, now that I have much more of an online presence and a reputation for, you know, writing books and doing various other things, can I actually, you know, make a success at this book when all of the marketing, you know, onus is on me. And I don't have, you know, this is the O'Reilly book on data science to fall back on. So,
0: And and once you've decided to self-publish it, um, you had to choose a place to do that. And at least one of the places you've chosen to publish it is is LeanPub. Uh, Why did you choose to publish it on our
1: platform? So uh, you'll you'll laugh at this too. So I started off just... um, using Markdown files and Pandoc. And, and I wasted a lot of time trying to get Pandoc to like format the book in in a way that didn't look like really awful. Um, and I was never really that successful about it. And so then just like almost on a lark, I, you know, I converted everything to Lean LeanPub flavored Markdown and uploaded it. Um, and and it looked pretty nice out of the gate. Um, and I was like, you know what, I, I like how this looks. I'm just gonna keep going with it. And um, my one main complaint is that in Pandoc, I was able to make the code blocks have a different background color, which I liked, but um, that was a uh, small I do complaint believe, in the I do, of I,
0: I do believe we have an option for a gray or a yellow background uh, if you choose a custom book theme uh, for oh, code blocks, okay. but... I'll, I'll I'll confirm that and let you know afterwards. Yeah, I, I wasn't able to find that option, but yeah, yeah well that's that's cool, be, that would be that's cool. That would be an effectively non-existent feature from your perspective. So that's that's obviously a problem that we need to solve anyway. Uh, but actually, setting that setting that that aside, which we have, which I will note, um, uh, the last question I always like to ask on these uh, interviews when I'm interviewing someone who's published on Leanpub is if there was one feature, like any, if you could ask us to build anything you wanted for you, or if you could ask us to fix anything that really bugged you for you. Uh, can you think of anything that you would ask us to build or fix
1: hmm that's an that's an interesting question um, anything you could fix for me um you know it's funny i i there there's several levels of plan right and so while I was writing the book, I signed up for the intermediate level and then once I got ready to launch the book I went up to the higher level because it has more analytics and things like that. I I think I probably should have done the higher level earlier and and made more usage of the API and stuff because um, there were a lot of kind of manual processes I kept doing that I should have automated for the extra three bucks a month Um, but that's not really something you should have changed that's something I should have done differently. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, we should probably uh, be be a little bit more clear about how. So, but yeah. So basically, what Joel's talking about is we have three plans: a free plan. A, we have a freemium model, right? So the basic plan is free. Then we have a standard monthly plan, and then a Pro monthly plan. That's, that's with the very original naming, uh, rank there. Uh, but but yeah, and so the the higher you go in the level, the more sophisticated the tools get. Uh, and if you figure them out and you can use them, uh, then the more efficient your processes get as an author. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a pretty important thing. And we should, we should probably be better at advertising or or talking about how like, actually like, you know, you might have to learn one or two things, but if if you use the pro thing, like we built it to make it more efficient, uh, for people, uh, to use, um, well, uh, Joel, thank you very much for taking the time out of the day to be, uh, on the front matter podcast. And thanks very much for being a lean pub author.
1: Yeah. Thank you for providing the service and thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: Thanks very much.